You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of the Anarchaeologist Podcast. Yep, I'm doing this late at night, in my own bedroom, like all the time, and it's just me, it's just me. I know it seems like I haven't spoken to you guys in ages, so let me please first apologize. I've been on a huge run at work, so I'm just, I'm just crazy. So anyway, today I want to talk about a few things that are kind of popping up. In the general, I'd say, research, academia sphere, as well as the archaeology one, of course, talking about a few archaeology stories. Now, one of the biggest stories I want to touch on is definitely the comments by Tim Hunt. I thought that was a very, very interesting piece of uh, news. And what's even better coming out of it is the hashtag distractingly sexy, which was absolutely fantastic to see. Now, the other things I want to focus on are a few of the interesting finds that people have been talking about recently including um dog burials of course we uh, everybody likes that a ceramic jar with biblical name references and uh, some other bits and pieces of course it was the summer solstice recently so i wonder what sort of uh what, what monument did everybody try and gather around hmm i wonder Anyway, thank you for um, tuning in uh, to listen to this week's show. I want to give a big shout out to everybody who talks to me on on Twitter, which includes, of course, I have to say, what what a wonderful guy David Meyer is. I really admire him, and I love what he does with um, Podcasts Without Borders. I did a show with him a couple of weeks ago. Well, no, it's now a month ago. And uh, you can find that um, if you look for a podcast without borders, podcast without borders. And I had a great chat with him and Aaron, of course, is is his um, co-host. And interestingly enough, I had a great chat with his dad as well, who is Paul Meyer, Papa Meyer. Big big ups to him. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. There's also, of course, the guys um, at Jewel of Taints who can't stop including me because I sent in one rant by Indiana Jones once to their show, and, uh, well, they just have to let go of that. Um, <laughs> there's also another show called Empty Rant, which does stuff about beer, and, of course, interestingly enough, one of their guys, um, uh, one of their guys uh, is a chemist, so I talk chemistry to him occasionally on Twitter, which is really cool. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of really great people out there. Again, if you want to hear some really amazing people, just head on over to Twitter and, you know, I tweet them all the time. You know, I really do. I'm currently listening to Dark Angels and Pretty Freaks because uh, that's my, like, that's my weekly ritual. I know that sounds really weird and, you know, but that's, that's the thing about listening to podcasts. It, it becomes a bit of your uh, routine and I hope... I hope that if you listen more to the Archaeology Podcast Network, it'll become part of your routine as well. But I'm not I'm not gonna cross the fingers or anything. I'm not gonna, you know. 
I'm not gonna hold my breath, but hopefully uh, you guys check those out. And of course, I can't, I can't, can't forget to mention, of course, Stranger Conversations. I was on that. I did a record-breaking three-hour show, which was then broken again recently within three hours and fifteen minutes. And God damn it, I almost had it. But anyway, enough about podcasts, because you're probably not that interested about podcasts. Um, Just one little tiny quick aside, remember that if you are listening via iTunes, it really, really helps me out Um, if you rate and subscribe. I don't really usually ask people to do that, and really, if you think my show isn't worth it, that's fine. Not a problem. I'll just cry myself to sleep, but uh, just kidding. It really does help if you just take the time and just give it a rating, give it a review, and it it it's, it just bumps the show up a little bit, and that means more people hear it, and I feel more psychologically validated. So, it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, but in any case, uh, let's let's begin off with the wonderful, wonderful Mister Tim Hunt. Now, uh, a number of weeks ago, Tim Hunt was uh, giving a speech to a room full of uh, scientists. Uh, and unfortunately, he was... Uh, he, he kind of... He was giving this speech, and in the middle of his speech, he kind of... Well, no, he, he, basically, he basically just said that, oh, women are terrible in the lab, you know. You fall in love with them, they fall in love with you, and you can never get anything done, you know. I mean, come on, you know, like... Oh, and if you criticize them, they'll cry. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's it's basically it's a part of a larger kind of attitude within sciences um, about the way women are treated and looked at, despite eminent female scientists out there. It's seen as a very male pursuit. It's seen as a very kind of Oh yeah, well, we we scientists, you know, a scientist. Let's face it, you know, if you look in the same way, and I'm not I'm not saying this is any better, but in the same way you look at a nursery book and you know that it talks about jobs and you open up to the page for the nurse and of course it's a female nurse, right? Uh, you, you know, when you open the page to scientist, what's the scientist? Is the scientist male or female? And I know that's like some little tiny, tiny little thing. And I mean, come on, you know, it's a nursery book. But these are the small hidden prejudices that people have to face every day. There's an example of the kind of small, tiny pre the pre- prejudices that people kind of have and carry with them as baggage. And when it gets up to a point where you have power then it has a problem. Then there's a problem. So, like, the thing is, of course, Tim Hunt was pretty much slaughtered for this. But, um, funny enough, when he was asked about it, then he, uh, he kind of apologized that he'd said it? Or he'd kind of... He apologized that people got offended or you know it, 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 it wasn't really apology it was instead it was kind of like oh damn it they got me you know like oh i'm sorry you reacted like this and it, it's one of these very interesting um situations in which you know he didn't actually apologize he didn't feel remorseful about saying those kind of comments 
And, um, of course, now his Wikipedia entry is, of course, one of the biggest things about remarks about women in science. One of the interesting things is that, you know, after he said it, it was kind of like, oh, no, no, it's it's just, um, I, I was making a joke. I was making a joke. And this is really, this is difficult to deal with because had this been a joke, right, the context would need to, you know, it should have been obvious that it was a joke. Because the problem with someone like Tim Hunt saying these kind of um, comments is it feeds into how women and how other people feel about, you know, what the science is and research is like. I mean, we had... What was interesting was, like, coming out of the um, Charges Institute for Archaeologists, their uh, conference, coming out of that, we had the hashtag EverydigSexism for archaeology. And, like, and then we have this happening... And an even uh, and just as a great hashtag out of that called distractingly sexy, it, it just goes to show that these are very similar connected. Uh, they're similar kind of events. What's happening is people are saying, "Hey, okay, there's something. There, there's a big event happening. It's brought into the public eye. Look, this is how we feel every day, but we don't always have the time or the place to kind of say it in the way we want to say it." So these hashtags pop up in response to kind of say, actually, this is how we feel all the time, but we don't always have the time or the space or the place to say it. And what's interesting is that I'm kind of glad that Tim Hunt basically gave people a reason to talk about this. You know, of course, his comments were terrible. And like, and I think it's because, because he was so high up in um he he was an honorary professor i mean like th- this is the guy who's you know top of the top of the list in terms of um, he was like a he's a fellow of the royal society i mean this guy is really top kind of uh top kind of material there and that means he's got a lot of power people respect his authority and you know he makes a lot of decisions so i think I think his comments, number one, his comments, he shouldn't have made them. You know, he shouldn't have made them at all. But he also should have thought about what's he saying, you know, and ultimately, why does he think this? And um, the thing is that, obviously... in our age, when things spread like wildfire, you you do get a, a, a community backlash. You know, you say something, and suddenly everyone's against you. And in the past, you had a couple of people around you who might have said, "Hey, that's not cool." But imagine now everybody on the streets saying that. I mean, that, that that is a very different field. The fact is that people see. People see the attack on Tim Hunt as an attack on him personally. And in many ways, it's actually more of an attack on him as a figure of authority, as a figure of respect, and 
as somebody who's contributing to the continuation of the issues that we have in science when it comes to gender disparities. And um, what's really interesting is, well, you know, you have people coming out and defending him and say, look, you know, he said this stuff, but we can't just, like, lynch him in the public eye. You know, like, there's no court. You know, there's no fair trial. And, uh, I mean, actually, even uh, physicist and broadcaster Brian Cox, whom I... I got not a lot of love for Brian Cox, and this this probably doesn't make him any better in my eyes. But he was um, he saw it as very much a hounding of uh, Tim Hunt. It was a very kind of like it was targeted and attacking Tim Hunt, and we we, we shouldn't do that uh, because like um, we sh- we shouldn't so viciously attack. Um, but the thing is you know like this is one of the issues that we are still working on as part of the internet you know like we used to have i think we always had these outbursts and these emotional outbursts within ourselves but the problem is now we can voice them and you know there are right ways of going about things and the wrong ways of going about them but what really is happening here is somebody has for their entire life not had anything really stacked against them and they've been free to say anything they want to because they've had an authority you know i mean they've been they've been a fellow of the royal society they've been they've been connected to the u.s national academy of science he was awarded a nobel prize you know, for his research. I mean, this isn't just some guy who's in a research facility who's a bit grumpy. I mean, this is a this is a pretty this is a guy up the ladder. And you know, when you are representing institutions, when you're being the face of something, you I mean, it, it does does it look good for an institution for you to be saying these kind of things? I mean, ultimately, it's up to UCL you know, what happens, because obviously, um, that he's, you know, it's, it's an honorary processorship, and there's a lot of other interesting ways of going about what to do with him, but I think it opened up, um, quite a big gap for, um, interesting discussions, and ultimately, you know, we can't have this kind of conversation, in in this kind of manner anymore we, we can't um but i mean you know what let's uh let, let's move on and i think if anybody's interested you know there's tons and tons of stuff out there on the internet uh, check out the hashtag devastatingly uh sexy and check out the hashtag for uh, everyday sexism you should still be able to pick up some of the stuff there absolutely fantastic examples of people fighting against these kind of assumptions and i i think that's really really great and that's definitely something we should focus on when we're talking about these issues anyway onto a onto a onto a different kind of story this is research this is from uh life science and this is about 
Uh, Egypt, of course, because, hey, you can't have an archaeology show without Egypt, eh? Um, oh, damn it, I can't, I can't bemoan anybody now, can I? Damn it. So, um, interesting enough, there's been some new research into um, the <clears throat> uh, into a ta- uh, catacomb at Saqqara. Is, um, it's in honour of Anubis, and apparently they've managed to find 8 million mummified puppies and grown dogs. Which is a staggering number. It's really, really huge. And um, it, it, it means that we have to really consider that Anubis and worship of Anubis was a really big deal. Because if it wasn't, then who the hell is dumping 8 million puppies and dogs into a catacomb? Who's taking the time to mummify them? So it's obviously a very, very interesting uh, discovery. And it's... Um, it, it, it's kind of, it's fascinating because, you know, everybody's interested in Egypt. Everybody's interested in the mummification process. It's interested, it's it's really interested people in a sense of what do these rituals mean? Why, why do people do this? And, uh, you know, I, as always, I'd love to see far more research uh, into it. It'd be lovely to get an idea of, you know, how, uh, like mapping it out, you know, get a few... Uh, 3D renderings of the tomb show us where it all gets, you know, like, where's the body scattered? You know, is there ritual behavior inside the tomb? Is there ways of, is there ways of knowing uh, what way these animals are placed? Lots of great stories, and I think it'll be something really to definitely keep your eye on. So, um, the next story I've got coming up is one that touches a little bit into biblical archaeology. Now, biblical archaeology is an interesting field to study. It's very, very, very big in the Middle East. It's very much focused on finding um, events and ideas tied to the Bible uh, and to the and to the various books in the Bible and also including the Torah, etc., etc. Now, recently... Um, in Israel, a number of Israeli archaeologists have found a 3,000-year-old pot, um, kind of a jar, and apparently it's got an inscription of a name that's mentioned in the Bible. Now, what's what's interesting, obviously, is that um, this gives... in biblical archaeologist's mind this gives credence to the historical nature of the bible and that's that's the main driving force for biblical archaeology is to actually say well actually there are historical elements in the bible there are some things that we can kind of verify and uh, what's um what's interesting is obviously how what that actually eventually means i mean okay so the name is i'm going to butcher this i'm going to butcher this um eshba al ben beda i think is what the name is i i i'm not very good at pronouncing it so uh but it's interesting because this is a kind of a common name um so but with regard to how it fits in the bible i mean 
you're not a common person if you got your name inscribed in a jar. Or so the Israeli archaeologists who study this are saying that it's obvious because it was inscribed in a jar, you know, kind of important. I mean, you figure out for yourself what you think, uh, whether you think that's um, a conclusion you can draw or not. If you're interested in finding out more about it, it is probably searchable number of places, uh, but it's um, <clears throat> it's the archaeological site of Kirbet Kweafa in the Valley of Elah in Israel, and uh, the name again is Eshba Al Ben Beda. So, if you're interested in jars, if you're interested in archaeological um, excavations with regards to the Bible. Um, if you're looking at Middle Eastern kind of areas, that's that's definitely where you're going to get a lot of your information. As always, be skeptical about who is giving you the information. Why are they doing this research? And, you know, don't believe everything you hear while listening to the podcast. Yeah, hmm. yeah I'm just, I'm, I'm great in this, you know. <laughs> don't believe me. I could be wrong too. Um, next is a, is hopefully the, the, almost the end of the tunnel for the Kenwick Man. So the Kenwick Man is one of the most divisive cases in recent archaeological history. It is about a, uh, is about human remains that have been, were found in America, um, basically in Washington State near the, in the Columbia River, and that was back in 1996. And when they were found, um, it was kind of like, it was thought that the individual wasn't particularly Native American because of, the, they used craniometric measurements and they kind of said, well, we don't actually think, we think he's extremely old. Um, we now know it's around 8,500 years uh, old. And uh, we don't think he's Native American, and so we don't think NAGPRA covers him, and we, we want to do research. And so I've commented on this before, and um, I don't want to retract what I said before, but I think there is more nuance uh, to it. And I said before I questioned the reasons why the army, uh, the the um, Marine Corps, Army Corps of Engineers um, wanted to hand the remains over so quickly to the Native American groups, and I questioned that. But ultimately, whatever their reason was is inconsequential in the grand scheme of things because um, of the way this, this, this entire um, saga because you can only call it that, is the perfect example of how scientists deal with indigenous populations, and that's haphazardly and without concern. It's 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 awful, really, and um, it's 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 just a continual kind of messing around with people. And I don't know, it's it's a very sad case uh, because basically what happened was the Army Corps of Engineers were ready to hand over the body and uh, eight scientists came in and said, hey, no, no, we want it. 
we don't think it's Native American. Right? So, we don't think it's under NAGPRA. We want to study it. So, what happened is they got the lawsuit. And, um, you know, they got to study the uh, body. The only problem is that, well, not a lot of very people were happy with this. And so they got the body in 2004, and a study was published in 2014. Now, the thing is that the genetic data that was uncovered basically proves that the Kenwick man was Native American. You know, this is a prime example of how to get it wrong. This this is the perfect example. How how do you do working with indigenous populations wrong? This is how you do it. You know, and obviously there are scientific inquiries that we have, and there is scientific uh, interest. There's scientific need. And there's, there's uh, like, we, we shouldn't hold people back from finding out information. But it's the way in which we do it. Because for hundreds of years, scientists, in quotes, have taken people away from their families. Like, white people, Europeans, came over to America and erased the culture of indigenous peoples. They, they raise their culture. And, I mean, that's quite difficult for us to think about now because we, we can't imagine that. We can't imagine somebody coming the next day and saying, you can't believe that. That's wrong. This is how you, uh, like, live your life. Forget anything else that you've ever learned or you've ever thought about that could ever identify you. Now, what what this is... And then, and then nowadays scientists say, no, 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 we know best because we're the scientists. We've got all the scientific stuff we have to do with the bodies. Forgetting that when a museum has something in archives, it's left alone for decades. You know, I mean, we, we are finding there are stories where we find stuff that we didn't know was even in the archive. We don't have a record of it. And yet, we're trying to say, no, no, no. This this, this body of this uh, person who was found in America, pre-Columbian times, not in the Native American. It just, it boggles the mind. You know, there, there was a story um, recently in Siberia about a Siberian mummy. And the indigenous groups up there, they said, look... We understand their scientific value, but nobody studied the body for 10 years. We've got a site to bury them. If you want, you can exhume the body to do tests on it. That's fine, but we want to keep them in the place of resting. It's handed on a plate. And that, that you know, people will work with you if you work with them. And this is the thing. There's this presupposition uh, that, you know, oh no, these Native Americans, they just want to, you know, they just want to destroy this. You know, that's the presupposition. And it's wrong. 
you know, I, I, I want, I want people to work together. But the thing is, we have to realize that we don't work in a vacuum. We don't work without history or social context. And this, 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 the Kenwick man has been, honestly, has been five steps backwards for the scientific community. And I hope that, finally, people understand, was it really worth it? Was it really worth doing all that stuff? I mean, the thing is, that when we talk about repatriation, we're talking about decolonization. We're talking about trying to sort out the last few hundred years. And that's not going to happen overnight. And nobody says it will. But we can't keep making the same mistakes. We can't keep repeating what people did in the past. I mean, you look at America's problem with race. And you look at now Britain, like, going completely right-wing. You know, with the way it treats foreigners. And uh, I'm just... I'm just sick and tired of hearing conservative viewpoints (laughs) and people treating people differently, uh, detrimentally, and not taking responsibility because, hey, it happened like hundreds of years ago. The Kenwick Man is a very, very complex case, and it's got lots and lots of layers to it. So don't listen to me, or don't just listen to me, do go and read up on it and read up from a number of sources if you can go and find um, any indigenous writing on it as well and if you're interested in archaeology in America if you're interested in archaeology full stop or Australia or anywhere look for indigenous viewpoints because they're gold they're honestly they're gold and you gotta you gotta make the most of it because I, I, there's far too little there's there's not enough indigenous voices when it comes to indigenous archaeology and we just we need more we need to encourage more people to do it we need to encourage people to take it up and you know we need to sometimes we need to lose out you know sometimes we need to say hey you know what we can't do the whole thing but we can do a bit i mean look at any experimental design you're not going to have the perfect experiment every single time and sometimes you're going to have to make amends and you're going to have to you know like you're going to have to cut corners you're going to have to reduce your sample size or something like that you know you you have all these constrictions already i mean i don't understand why repatriating bodies is such a big deal but you know I'm not doing one studying ancient human remains, so, you know, what I have to say may be different to somebody who is. And if you're in, I mean, if you disagree with me, please, 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 please contact the show. Tell me what's wrong. You know what? Heck, record something. Send it in. I'll play it on the show. We can have a discussion. I'm always on Twitter. We can talk it out. I mean, if you disagree with what I have to say, that's that's fine. You know, I'm not going to say you know, I'm 100% right and nobody can argue with me. I'm just saying that there needs to be more of a discussion and a better discussion. But that's neither here nor there, is it? (laughs) 
Oh dear, oh dear. Well, I'm going to wrap up this show. Um, this is going to be a quick one for you. I'm hopefully having a show next week. I'll try and record something and uh, see if I can get some ideas together, some thoughts together. And, you know, um, as always, if you're interested in talking to me, you can always head on over to Twitter and find me at anarchaeologist. Also remember there are other great shows on the Archaeological Podcast Network and you can find the streams on iTunes and your podcast player. And if you are on iTunes uh, and you really, really love me, you you can leave a review uh, and you can, you know, tell your friends. Tell your friends. This is really cool. Anyway, anyway, if you have any comments or discussions, it doesn't matter who you are, you can talk to me because I love hearing from you. You know, there there's nothing better in my mind to hear somebody want to talk to me because I'm excited about archaeology. I really am. I think it's absolutely amazing. And I think archaeology encompasses everything. You can talk about archaeology through the lens of everything, you know? And maybe maybe that's because I've dedicated four years of my life to archaeology and, you know, I, I've, I've made a lot of decisions to do with archaeology and so I have to justify why it relates to everything else in my life. But archaeology is amazing, you know? And I, I just I, I, I just want to get more people excited about it. So if you're excited about it, please, please, please talk to me about it. Because I want to talk. I want to talk. Uh, because obviously being on a podcast by myself is not good enough. Anyway, um, enjoy. And um, I'll play you out with this music. Enjoy. All right, I'm back with Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm, and I want to ask you about the boot camps that you put on in Los Angeles. Um, we've talked a lot about what's on The Art of Charm podcast, but what can people expect from attending a live boot camp? Sure. So people come in from all over the world and attend our boot camps in Hollywood, California. Uh, right now we've got guys from like Denmark. We have a guy from China, which is kind of random, not the usual, uh, and all over the U.S., Canada, U.K., and even Australia, which is great. Uh, and the men's version is actually residential. So they stay in the house that we have. We have a sweet three-story house with like a gym on the roof and it's our classrooms nice. in there and stuff. Yeah, and so what we do is we teach nonverbal communication, vocal tonality, body language, eye contact, how to exhibit confident uh, nonverbal communication, how to actually read it in others, a little bit of negotiation persuasion type of uh, stuff so that you can deal with difficult people. Uh, a lot of sort of hacks with human behavior and then we drill it and film you in interactions with other people and we're like okay this is what you're doing right this is where you need improvement and then we bring you out during the day and at night and we also have coaches go out with you then too and then you get feedback and we sort of fine-tune all of your interactions and it's not trying to get you to become a weird like fake version of you we're actually subtracting so we're not adding things onto your personality we're subtracting things that you do like weird little ticks that you probably wouldn't do if you were comfortable uh, weird little flavels that you do and say when you're nervous or when you're trying to get something from somebody or when you don't know what to do and we kind of iron all of that out so it's uh if you've ever used a foam roller it's kind of like a foam roller for your personality <laughs> and and i wanted to point out too this isn't just for uh, you know, guys looking to hook up with girls, as, as you say. One of the no. one of the last podcasts I listened to from the Art of Charm, there was a alumni on there that uh, was mentioning. I mean, he's been married for like twenty years. He's got I don't know three, four, five kids, 
and he went down there and it, it changed his life. You know, he just wanted to be a better person. Yeah, exactly. It's not about hooking up with girls or more guys or whatever. It's not about dating exclusively. It overlaps in every area. And, you know, like you've, if you listen to the podcast, you've heard guests from one of our recent guys was, he's a Canadian intelligence agent. And he talks about how to read people and how to use rapport and build rapport and build confidence socially in, you know, for his purposes and how that overlaps to civilians. And we've got all kinds of stuff from like, here's how to get people attracted to you all the way to here's how to negotiate the price of your car. I mean, that's anything that has to do with applied human psychology it's on the show, and it's what we teach at our boot camps at our school. Nice. Well, that sounds great. In the meantime, check out The Art of Charm wherever you get podcasts and at www.artofcharm.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com